Journey Solar. This. This. This is What's Up. What's up, everybody? It's uh, Connor and Marie here from GRNE Solar, here with uh, a great podcast recording today talking about off-grid systems. We've really rolled out the red carpet for our next guest. We uh, have a conversation with our colleague and resident expert, Travis Kepler. Um, He is a design engineer here among many other hats that he wears, but we talked to him today about off-grid solar and applications, how you would as an individual look into implementing off-grid. Yeah, yeah, we had a good discussion, uh, a prelude really to uh, battery technology as well. So yeah. uh, I think this just further enhances our need for a dedicated battery episode. Oh, 100%, 100%. There were so many different battery technologies, and I messed up again. It's battery chemistries is how <laughs> Travis was ref- referring to them as. And so it, that was a great conversation in itself. So without further ado, here is the episode with Travis Kepler of GRNE Solar on off-grid applications. All right, we now welcome Travis Kepler of GRNE Solar. Absolutely. I have uh, worked for GRNE since its inception back around 2012. Uh, in my current position, I'm a, a design engineer, but uh, I've been with the company since it started, kind of do a little bit of everything. Uh, my background's in manufacturing. I have a degree in manufacturing engineering and computer programming. Um, I started off my professional career and uh, kind of the, the energy generation space, but it was a little bit more on the industrial side. I used to work for an industrial boiler manufacturer where we produced big water tube boilers. So that's kind of how I got my entrance into the industry. But yeah, since then, uh, I had, did some side work with our current owners and uh, they were graceful enough to uh, take me on full time when GRNE really took off. Yeah, that's awesome. So I know the the primary discussion point we're going to be talking about today is, you know, off-grid solar, uh, you know, kind of all the ins and outs of that. Can we start by maybe having you give us, uh, you know, uh, compare and contrast, I guess, the two differences between, uh, you know, an off-grid uh, solar system and a traditional solar system that a lot of, you know, residential customers, for example, would have installed on their home? Yeah, definitely. So the the major component difference there is going to be the, the battery storage component. So sure, you can do that still with a, a traditional grid type system to have some emergency backup for your dedicated loads, but it's not going to be as major of a factor as to if you're truly fully off-grid. Some of the inverter components could be a little bit different, but they could also be similar. And But a lot of it comes down to having an in-depth understanding of what your usage is going to be and then able to capture enough storage capacity in, in order to, to fulfill those needs. And is it, so is it possible for homeowners to have a hybrid system? Like I have a little bit of on-grid and then say the grid shuts down? Yeah, definitely. So at GRNE, we do a fair amount of those projects where um, a customer will say, hey, I want some, some battery backup to power these critical loads. So typically what we would do is we would <clears throat> wire an additional sub panel that would have those specific dedicated loads in it. So it's not enough to power their whole entire house, 
but uh, it could get them by in an emergency situation. So it could have a couple light circuits, a couple outlets on it, um, maybe some smaller appliances, but you can only do so much unless you're gonna spend an, an absorbent amount of money to really build that whole entire system that can power a lot. Hmm. Interesting. So, so when you say that, you know, for example, uh, uh, if I'm building an off-grid solar system, let's say, you know, I bought, you know, property and I'm building a cabin on it um, and I just want to put a system up and be completely off-grid. What type of information would I, you know, need to know, you know, about maybe like batteries or solar panels? Uh, you know, personally, me, I'd probably bring in a contractor to do it. But, you know, if I was working on trying to do it myself, you know, what types of things, um, you know, would I need to know to actually build that system? So if you're going to be truly off-grid, you need to have a very good understanding of every single component that you're planning to power and how long it's going to typically be ran on a, a normal day or a, a normal cycle. So almost all electronics on the backside of them, they're going to have a little label that tells you what voltage it operates at as well as how many amps it consumes. So you can take the voltage time the amperage to get how many watt hours or watts and then however many hours it's on, you multiply it to get the watt hours. So that's kind of how energy storage is calculated as well. You have X number of watt hours per battery pack. Um, so uh, you really have to have a good understanding of what you're going to be using and how long you're going to be using it for. Even 100 watts doesn't seem like a lot, but if you have 100 watts on for 24 hours straight, it adds up and will definitely eat through a battery bank. Interesting. So, so like, for example, you know, if we're, if I'm looking to, you know, power different light bulbs in my, in my cabin, you know, maybe a larger load, like a, you know, smaller refrigerator or something like that. Essentially what you're telling me is, uh, you know, I need to do a, a form or sort of load calculations to determine, okay, Hey, you know, I've got 10 light bulbs at hundred Watts each. Let's say, you know, I'm using old light bulbs. Uh, I got a refrigerator and stuff like that. This is how many batteries, you know, this is how many solar panels I need, that type of thing. Yeah, definitely. So <clears throat> there's a handful of calculators that you can find online. One of the ones that I like the most, it's actually an uh, Excel download is by Fortress Power. And it has a lot of those common items pre-programmed and you can kind of go through and just pick and choose. Solark, they're an inverter manufacturer. They have another one as well. It even takes into account the solar production. So you can put how many solar panels in your zip code in there and it'll estimate what you're going to need. Um, but I like to go even beyond that. So I, I'll take kind of that basic information that's quick and easy to get out of there and then build out my own Excel sheet that has the more specific detailing. Cause a lot of those are estimates. So they're like a residential refrigerator. They're just estimating what the average residential refrigerator uses versus what your specific one might use could be a little bit different. Right. So you really need to have a, an in-depth understanding of each individual component and exactly what it's going to consume and then kind of plan for the worst case scenario. So then taking it a step further, I'm assuming the consultant would or engineer team would work with the customer to get all of those load calculations figured out. What goes into designing an off-grid system from like the installer's point of view? Yeah, definitely. So as you mentioned, I would uh, strongly encourage people to reach out to a consultant or engineering firm to help them at least uh, get the understanding and the basic design for their system. Sure, you can DIY the install and do some of that on your own, but to have an extra set of eyes reviewing the, the componentry and the calculations goes a long ways to make sure that you're going to be successful. Um, beyond that, uh, 
it, it kind of comes down to some of the customer preferences. So uh, similar to a conventional residential solar, there's different tiers of, of product categories. Uh, some of them are cheaper and more economical. And then there's some more systems that are intricate and higher end and have more monitoring capabilities. And, and so it really kind of depends on what their budget is and what their their likely outcome or expectations are. So there, there's different battery chemistries. Uh, some are relatively affordable, but have uh, a shorter lifespan. Some are more expensive and uh, are warrantied a lot better and will last a lot longer. So it, it's kind of fine tuning it to exactly what their expectations and needs are. Hmm. Okay, so so to piggyback off that question as well, let's say you you know you, let's say you're designing a system right for for a client or something like that. What if they have you know plans to expand in the future? Um, you know, are there are there certain precautions you can kind of take to say, hey, you know, this uh, inverter system will allow more solar panels and allow additional battery storage in the future, or is it once you build it, you're kind of locked in and you need to essentially just replace equipment to expand in the future? That's one good thing about a lot of the off-grid components is they are very modular. So they're kind of small in scale, but you can couple or parallel several of them together. So it, it it's pretty simple to add more capacity or more charging or they're, they're all pretty much kind of building blocks that can work together. So then once an off-grid system is, is installed, and up and running, what are the next steps for the homeowner to like track the system's performance or making sure that it is providing the that its needs to, to their essentials? Definitely. So a lot of off-grid systems, uh, you're going to have a little bit more necessity to understand exactly the status of all of your components in order to I guess be overly successful. So you need to know kind of the state of that battery at all times and also plan ahead. You need to look at the weather. Like, do we have two cloudy days coming up? Is a snowstorm coming up? So, so gathering all of that data and kind of having uh, a running total in your head, I would guess, to, you, you kind of have to forecast quite a bit. So but like I mentioned there, some of the cheaper systems don't have all of that data in aggregate. Um, they're kind of just more of a high level that can give you the voltage, but not necessarily the percentage or the state of charge. But then some of the higher end systems, they they monitor all the components and they all talk to each other and share data. And almost all of them now, they have the capability to export that data to the cloud. So you can view it on your computer or your smartphone, but that just requires uh, an additional source of an internet or a hotspot or something. So, so it's definitely similar to uh, how our residential systems are but uh, it, it's kind of a little more intricate in some aspects where there's more metering and component monitoring involved. Yeah, interesting. Cause you know, right now, for example, like I'm, I'm you know, obviously familiar with, you know, a lot of the major residential and, you know, some of the CNI um, inverter manufacturers, Solar Edge, you know, Enphase SMA. Um, and obviously, you know, all three of those manufacturers do have a monitoring platform, um, you know, Solar Edge and uh, Enphase, for example, you know, you can actually see like battery charges and, you know, some of that additional information. Uh, but it sounds like, so it sounds like some, some of these off-grid, you know, components as well also offer that. But like you said, there's a next level of understanding that, okay, you know, I can't just have, you know, my local utility back me up when I have six inches of snow, you know, I actually need to forecast that and make sure I don't leave my lights on all day, like that type of thing. 
Yeah, and a lot of that comes back to having a properly thought out plan. So if you have a, a secondary redundancy, whether that's a generator or a gas heating source or, or something else that can help you be successful to make sure you're not left in the dark. Right, <laughs> literally. <laughs> yeah. So then would you say that this is a viable option for like a full-time residence? Or is this a better application for like a cabin, like Connor was talking about, or a part-time home? Yeah, like a hunting lodge. Yeah, like who has a part-time home? (laughs) That was kind of like weird. (laughs) Yeah, again, that's really going to come down to your budget and your expectations. Uh, It's obviously doable. You could do a nice size house, but it is going to cost a lot of money. So uh, lots of people are more comfortable kind of doing it on the smaller scale because it, it's palatable and they can they can stomach the cost. But right now, uh, the, the long lifespan batteries are still a, a, an expensive component. Uh, they do perform well, but it, it's a lot of money to spend to just be able to be off grid. So <clears throat> there are other instances where that makes sense. So if you're building a, a remote property and the utility is gonna charge $50,000 to get power to your property, you can spend that $50,000 on a solar grid system and you can definitely build a decent system for that cost. So mm-hmm. um, it it's similar to residential solar. Each situation is kind of unique and has to be customized to, to fit what their needs are and, and their expectations. Yeah, that was a good point. I never even considered the building a home or even a cabin or whatever um, out in the middle of nowhere where you have to bring electricity over to it. So you're right. Allocating those funds to off-grid completely is probably amounts to give or take about the same. Hmm. Uh, yep, it's definitely a, a lifestyle change. You, you, you would have to way over engineer and over plan just to be able to live your day-to-day life as you would if you were on grid. But uh, if you're willing to alter your lifestyle a little bit and to do some more planning and forward thinking, then it's definitely doable. Obviously a major component of this system um, are those, the batteries you had, you know, kind of mentioned or previously mentioned with that in mind, you know, when, uh, you know, when you do have a battery system installed and it's, you know, charging and, you know, it's cycling essentially all of the time, um, you know, is there types of, you know, maintenance that needs to be done on these, you know, these large, you know, really this large investment, um, or is it just kind of like a set it and forget it? That's going to come down to the specific type of battery component they have. And even within those, there's <clears throat> subcategories. So uh, like a, a lead acid battery, there's several different types of lead acid batteries. So that's kind of an older technology, but it's tried and true, and it, it does serve a, a decent purpose for specific applications. So lead acid, you can get sealed lead acid or AGM batteries that are pseudo maintenance free. Um, they still need to be monitored and checked and can't be abused. But then you have uh, conventional lead acid batteries that need to be watered and topped off and maintained as well. But they do make automated systems that will automatically water your batteries and keep them topped off for, for lead acid chemistries. Um, when we get up into the, the lithium chemistries, they're a lot more maintenance free and they have a bunch more of those safeguards built into them. So lithium batteries um, typically have what's called a BMS, a battery management system inside of each battery. 
So it's essentially hooked to its own individual computer that monitors all of the, the subcells voltages and temperatures and currents and, and is kind of the brains for the battery. So I would say you could call a lithium battery a smart battery. So it's able to talk and control all those functions. Um, the, the lead acid batteries, um, people usually say they can get two to five years out of them, depending on how they're cycled. Um, if you're deeply cycling it and abusing it, it's not going to last as long as if you're only using like 20% of it at a time. Um, the, the lithium batteries, um, there's two common different types of that. There's NMC, which is nickel manganese cobalt, and there's lithium iron phosphate. Um, both are great batteries. Uh, the, the, the nickel manganese cobalt is a little more energy dense. That means it has a smaller footprint. There's more power in a smaller space. The, the lithium iron phosphate is considered a, a little safer chemistry. It doesn't have the thermal runaway that some of the NMCs do. And, but they, they both kind of function similarly and lots of the warranties are the same. So typically lithium manufacturers are warranting their products for 10 years or 6,000 cycles. So uh, that's kind of the, the nuts and bolts of the, the major different types of chemistries that we see. Now I feel like we have a perfect guest for our battery episode. Yeah. <laughs> to talk about all those because that alone, like, holy cow. Yeah. I mean, because like when I think of bad, different battery types, I either think of like, you know, for example, like the, the nice ones we install in residentials, you know, the lithium chemistries, like you said, mm -hmm. so I think of like, you know, just daisy chaining a bunch of like marine deep cycles in your basement and just like, yep. you know, throwing yep. them together, you know, right. <laughs> yep. Line up and, they, and they both work. Right? So in one other thing that, uh, I've recently ran into with a customer is he was a, a pseudo prepper and oh. he, he, he's had a system for five or six years, but he wanted to upgrade it. And he's like, I want something that's going to be EMP proof. And I was like, well, if you want lithium batteries, they're not really going to be EMP proof because they're technically controlled by a computer. So that's one thing is these have more power electronics built into them and they're a little more susceptible to some of these other things. So he actually had me install a secondary uh, lead acid. It was actually pure carbon batteries and lithium batteries. So he could switch back and forth if he needed to. So th they definitely still serve a purpose. And, and another thing is lithium doesn't really like very cold climates. So uh, commonly, if it's below freezing, the, the BMS will shut them down so you can't charge them. You can discharge, but you can't charge. So they like to be inside where it's warm, where lead acid, they, they're a little more forgiving in colder temperatures. When we look at some of the, the system equipment, so I'm looking at an on-grid solar system, and sometimes we say things like that battery or that component of the system doesn't, doesn't get along well with this that, this, that, or the other component or accessory, what have you. So does... In an off-grid setup, do the solar panels and the batteries, I'm, I'm assuming they work nicely together, they like each other, they're friends. <laughs> yeah, typically. So that for, for the most part, yes, they're virtually universal, but uh, there is some specific component selection that goes into making that work properly. So common battery voltages are 12, 24, 48 volt nominal. So your solar panels have to be coupled to a charge controller that can meet that voltage requirement. So lots of our commercial solar modules are operating around 45 volts DC. 
So if you hook two of those together in series, you're going to get 90 volts, but then that charge controller is going to take that and step it down to whatever the battery wants. So those two solar panels could charge a 12 volt, a 24 volt, a 48 volt battery bank. And in that just has to meet the, the, the requirements of what that specific charge controller is. So similar to inverters, charge controllers come in different sizes. Uh, they, they have different voltage and amperage output requirements that they can meet. But for the most part, they're pretty universal. And then would you use, we, we didn't even really cover this, but would you be able to use a standard inverter? Um, not exactly. So in residential installs, we do use, excuse me, a fair amount of hybrid inverters that are able to be coupled with a battery component. And some of those hybrid inverters will function fully off-grid as well. So um, it's kind of a fine line on whether it will truly work off-grid or if it's only a hybrid inverter. But there are definitely fully off-grid inverters that are made to not be hybrids. So it, it, there is some kind of difference in between some of them. Looking at things like backing up a little bit from um, an off-grid system, if you were to look at an entire house setup, how how would that look if if somebody built their home in the woods off-grid and they wanted to be 100% reliant on renewables? What would a home setup look like? So... Most likely what the, the end game would be is we'd end up paralleling multiple inverters together to get the output requirement. So um, large grid tied inverters, we're able to get big KW out of them. Like we can get by 50, 100 KW grid tied inverters. Um, for off-grid, we don't typically get ones that are that large. Um, usually you can get maybe a 10 KW, but there's not very many of those out there. So um, commonly what I see is people will take a, a few smaller inverters and parallel them all together. So say you could take three 5KW inverters to get a maximum output of 15KW, but that still isn't necessarily enough to power a whole house. So um, if you just run the, the calculations on what it would take to maximize a full 200 amp service at your house, that's 48KW if the, you're using the full 200 amps. So uh, it, it really kind of comes down to the component selection, how large the house is, do they have gas heat, is it 100% electric, what's the largest device that's going to come on. So um, uh, electric motors have a, an inrush current, that, so they use a whole lot of power when they first turn on and then they kind of back off, but the, the inverters and the batteries have to be able to, to meet the requirements of that initial current. Um, which is lots of times what causes systems to fail. They, they weren't designed to handle that inrush current. Um, the batteries have a limitation there too. So as I mentioned, the, the BMS that controls the battery, it will only allow a certain number of amps out of that battery at one time. So you can take and parallel multiple of them together in order to, to lessen that load per each unit. But there, there's still a lot of things that need to be considered when trying to power a whole entire house. And, and you would have a whole entire room full of equipment, like even more than a conventional mechanical room. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Well, that, uh, that I mean, that brings up another question I had, you know, talking about incorporating like geothermal and all of that um, into, uh, you know, your, your home to be completely powered on renewables. But I feel like that would just add additional electric requirements and you would probably just need more solar at that point. 
Yeah, it, you could uh, you could still get a like a hybrid geothermal. Some of them have like uh, a gas emergency backup. Yeah. So uh, geothermal historically doesn't work super well when it's very very cold. Um, it just relies on that emergency heating element to help supplement it because it can't capture enough heat from the ground. So when that emergency heating element would kick on, it could use the gas instead of trying to use resistive heat from the electricity. So there's potential to still run a geothermal unit, but how it's designed and configured could, could help the system benefit a lot. Sure, sure. Hmm. With that, I mean, we brought up geothermal um off-grid, on-grid, what do you foresee the next big form of renewables will be for, for in-home application? Um, I would say pioneering battery technology is still probably the biggest thing right now. Uh, we're seeing a, a lot more competition and a lot more parties come into the space. But uh, so I think that's going to drive innovation even more. There, there's, I don't know, people talk about wind and hydropower and all sorts of other things which have practical applications, but it doesn't necessarily fit uh, a, a residential footprint. Um, but I think a lot of the, the batteries are the, the biggest push right now. Do you, so you mentioned a few of them, are there any that aren't really being considered, but you think are, is gonna be a household like lithium iron is all I really know for batteries or lithium like applications or technology. I'm sorry, lithium chemistry is how we were referencing it before. Are there any that not many people are aware of, but you think are gonna are gonna be the next big thing? Um, sort of. A lot of the the chemistry technologies are being pushed by the larger utility scale factors. Yeah. Um, because on the opposite end of the spectrum, that's where companies are finding the most immediate need is uh, on like a utility scale storage project. So that's where probably the most innovation is. On the, the smaller residential side, I would just say there's more people introducing efficiencies as well as some uh, market competition, which is helping slightly drive prices down. But um, it, it's kind of just creating some more competition and perfection within the products, I would say. So warranties are getting better. Their expectations are going up and things like that. Um, there are other things out there. Like I'm familiar with some like hydrogen powered fuel cells for like very remote uh, communication systems like in Antarctica and stuff. So uh, they're able to power communication towers in the event that the sun isn't shining, their solar panels are covered in snow. So they're kind of coupled together. So that's one thing that's kind of interesting is just stuff like that. But uh, there's definitely still innovations like that happening that uh, they're, they're able to rely on that secondary fuel source for sometimes up to six months before somebody has to physically go visit it and replace the, the canister with the fuel in it. Wow. wow. Yeah. yeah. See, batteries just took over this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, with, with all the different, uh, you know, chemistries and, uh, you know, inverter types and everything out there available, um, you know, when somebody is considering doing this for their, you know, part-time house, uh, you know, or their cabin or whatever, um, you know, is there, you know, what's, what's a really good piece of advice that you would recommend when they're, you know, beginning this whole process? 
I would say try to find somebody that has done it or has knowledge about doing it. Um, there's lots of groups on Facebook and even I follow them just because I learn from other people's mistakes or questions or they had a bad experience with this or look out for this. So uh, just, just do some market research and try to find somebody that is familiar with the components and how they work and how electricity works and, and that can at least point you in the right step. Sure, I know lots of people like to DIY this stuff. It's readily available. You can buy things on the internet, but uh, you can help yourself a lot by having a basic understanding of what the components are and what they do. And, and then what their, especially their lifetime and longevity. If you're making this investment, uh, you might as well just purchase a quality component that's gonna serve your needs and not something that's gonna break down in a year. Fair enough. I love that. We're going to do something a little bit different with this episode. So what um, Anchor and Spotify allow us to do is for people to fill out and ask questions. Um, so what Travis didn't say in his introduction is that he's, I would say, our resident genius here at Journey Solar. If somebody doesn't know the answer, we talk to Travis. Um, and I would say that to his face, like I am now and behind his back as well. <laughs> <laughs> so what I'd like to do, and Travis, if it's okay with you, is we're going to put down below if you are on anchor.fm um, or if you're listening to us on Spotify, send in your questions to Travis, whether it be about off-grid batteries, which he has a wealth of knowledge on, um, or any other kind of solar topics. Put those down and we'll do an Ask Me Anything with, uh, with Travis, see what people come up with. Yeah, that would be Maybe great. It doesn't even have to be solar related. Yeah, <laughs> I'd love to see him squirm for once. <laughs> <laughs> Any questions? I'm up for it. Yeah. So as we wrap up, uh, where can people connect with you and or uh, your organization? Yeah, definitely. So Journey Solar, I'm, I'm sure our website will be all over this podcast, but you can hit us up there. I specifically sit at our Nebraska location. So if you're ever in Lincoln, Nebraska, you can come find us. Uh, my email is Travis at journeysolar.com. Uh, shoot me an email or reach out to Marie and Connor. We, we talk several times a week virtually, so we're, we're not strangers to each other. Awesome. Perfect. And then Travis also mentioned before the episode, um, as we were talking virtually, that uh, he has some other types of uh, references and, and different types of research. So we'll link all of that below for uh, people to check out more about Austin.